It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also now listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app. Punch in our coordinates, uh, one of those two coordinates, and then you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show. Dr. Byron Bridal, he has been on the show a number of times, and so it's a pleasure to welcome him back. He's been on talking about COVID-19, the vaccine, and uh, and things associated with that in the past. So now we're, we're well into vaccines being rolled out across the country. Uh, a lot of the restrictions are now starting to fall away in many of the provinces as we get back to somewhat of a, a, a normalcy in, in some provinces. And But we also have this new Delta variant that's uh, on the rise as well. Well, and so I wanted to have uh, Dr. Byron back on to talk about some of these things. Dr. Byron Bridal is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, and his research interests include developing a better understanding of how the immune system responds to viral infections, as well as designing immunotherapies for the treatment of cancers and infectious diseases, and he's also passionate about teaching immunology and contributing to the training of Canada's next generation of researchers. So, Dr. Byron Bridal, welcome back to the show. Hello, David. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, from that introduction, we talked about, you know, you have been on the show talking about COVID in the past and uh, some of the things associated with that. But now we're well into this rollout with the vaccines. Uh, many people uh, across the country, uh, I guess, gee, are we, at, are we at 50% or close to that, do you know, at this point? Uh, yes. It's, well, so, so, so long way to go with um, for those who want two doses of the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, but certainly well on the way in terms of single doses. And, and the numbers are falling quite a bit. Uh, I, I was just uh, uh, doing a little bit of traveling. I had to help set up my son out in British Columbia to go to university there. Uh, there, of course, the numbers are very low. I think one day they reported, and this is going back a few weeks now, uh, where they were under uh uh, 200 for the province. I, I think uh, Ontario is now sitting at that. But so well ahead of that, numbers were falling. Things were open out in British Columbia um, all over the place. People were out and about uh, at the malls, etc. Um, there was uh, dining, etc., and those kind of things. But, um, you know, still people were wearing masks, etc., etc. But uh, given what you're seeing, what is your sense of, of how things are moving forward? Uh, yeah, yeah, Alberta is very similar to what you just described as well. My understanding was they were opening up again on Tuesday of this week. And uh, yeah, especially particularly at West, things seem to be going you know, particularly well. Um, it, one of the things, of course, uh, one of the things that, um, that that this will be attributed to is the is the vaccines, of course. Mm. Uh, but one other thing that I'd like to point out is that, uh, especially at West, there's been, it seems like a large proportion of people that have naturally acquired immunity to the virus as well. Right. I've spoken about this before, even though we've been in the quotes lockdowns and wearing the masks and doing the physical distancing, the virus is still able to spread. That just has slowed it down to a certain degree. And, um, and a study that was put out um, a few months ago now, uh, done in British Columbia, actually, interestingly, uh, out, out of interest, which university is your son going to? Is it the University of British Columbia? It is, yep. Yeah, so in fact, this study was done um, and, and researchers uh, are from the University of British Columbia and the testing they did actually was in the vicinity of the University of British Columbia. So the greater Vancouver area 
and they tested hundreds of healthy adults and found that uh, remarkably 90% of them, uh, approximately 90% of them, had evidence of either naturally acquired or pre-existing cross-reactive immunity against SARS-CoV-2. So whatever the reason, uh, as I've always wanted, you know, tried to point out the, the, the ultimate goal, although the stated goal seems to be to get everybody vaccinated, really the, the practical goal is to get as many people immune to the SARS-CoV-2 as possible. And it certainly seems like a West, um, although we don't have, other than that one study, we don't have a good grasp of, of how uh, close the unvaccinated are to mm. herd immunity. Uh, certainly that, that study suggests that at West, there's a, you know, a, a very healthy level of, of immunity now against SARS-CoV-2 among the majority of the population. So uh, so that's great news. Now, with that said, uh, the greater Vancouver area is thought to have been ground zero for the introduction of the sars coronavirus 2 into Canada. So we'd expect immunity to be higher uh, there and, and per- potentially progressively um, less prevalent as we head east. Uh, and again, because we haven't been, been doing the testing, we don't know exactly where we are in mm. more of the eastern provinces, but, uh, but I, I suspect that that we're probably well on our way towards uh, having most people, uh, whether vaccinated or unvaccinated, having some level of immunity to the virus now. Well, I, I don't remember hearing much about the these studies that have been done on the naturally immune uh, element that you just talked about. Is this something that is generally known? Is it being shared? Uh, no, it, it, well, actually, it, it seems to be, if anything, downplayed quite a lot, mm-hmm. uh, because, for example, one of the things you hear is that we need to be vaccinating people, even right. if they were previously infected with the right. sars coronavirus 2 which, uh, from an immunological perspective, makes no sense whatsoever. So what we do have is there's a number of studies that have clearly shown that the naturally acquired immunity to the sars coronavirus 2 is quite robust and uh, very long-lasting, and, and actually... Um, one would suspect, from an immunological perspective, uh, one would expect that naturally acquired immunity actually might offer potentially greater protection against emerging new variants of mm. the SARS-Coronavirus 2. Right. And the reason for that is, is that the naturally acquired immunity is, will be directed against all of the components of the virus, not just the spike protein. And in fact, with the variants that we're seeing where the mutations are focusing in these variants is in the spike protein. And the other thing that uh, the naturally acquired immunity will uh, um, provide is quite a balanced immune response as well. Uh, so rather than just being dominated by antibodies, there will also be a healthy T-cell response against the virus, which is also protective. It's interesting. Uh, initially, in the, in the pandemic, there were two things that, that caused us to start downplaying the potential for naturally acquired immunity to be protective. One is uh, there, there's actually interest in the um, a textbook that's often used to teach virology at universities and this is known as fields virology it's a classic uh, virology textbook and it it promotes the idea that immunity to coronaviruses tends to be weak and, and not particularly long-lasting um, but that's based off of the the biology largely of what we call low pathogenic coronaviruses so the ones that would normally cause the common cold and uh, the reality is that immunity against highly pathogenic viruses, such as the SARS coronavirus 2, uh, definitely elicit robust immunity. In fact, it's interesting. We have published scientific studies now showing that even in children 
who, uh, for whom uh, COVID-19 is often very mild um, and, and often doesn't cause any disease. So often infection of children with SARS coronavirus too doesn't cause them to experience any disease whatsoever. Uh, and yet they are developing quite robust immunity uh, naturally against the virus. And so one could argue with a shortage of, of vaccine doses, um, and uh, that we have been experiencing, although we have had an influx of many doses now, but we still have many people are sitting with just uh, one dose. Uh, it, it would have been logical to have focused those doses on people and, and making sure we get people uh, who want to be vaccinated, their two doses, according to the uh, protocol that was approved by the companies that, that manufactured the vaccines, as well as the, the, the protocol that was approved by Health Canada. Uh, and it probably would have been better to focus on those who didn't have any evidence of immunity. Uh, and in fact, there's actually some uh, historical evidence um, that if if one has, has, has acquired natural immunity and then becomes vaccinated uh, and gets vaccinated with a vaccine that focuses that immunity on a single protein, what actually can happen, interestingly, is you can actually narrow that person's immunity to a certain degree because what will happen is if somebody's been previously infected and then they get vaccinated that vaccine will will serve as a booster dose essentially but it'll focus the response on the spike protein and uh, and we'll tend to lose a little bit of our immunity that we had gained against the against the other components of the virus and the reason why i raise this is um because uh, of the, the topic that you know that you were quite interested in chatting about which was the delta variant mm. Um, and of course, this this is the concern for anybody, for anybody who has evidence of immunity. So I guess to finish off that, the previous question is is no, we haven't done a good job in Canada uh, in in terms of tracking immunity, evidence of immunity. So that that would be one of the things that I think we should have done right from the beginning mm. is um, rather than focus so much on the PCR test, which detects whether the virus is present at that moment, at the moment of sampling in the body was to couple that with antibody testing, which would tell us if somebody has been previously exposed to the SARS coronavirus 2, then we'd be in a much better position to know how close or how far we are among the unvaccinated community to, to, to that community having achieved herd immunity. Um, and, but regardless, that is ultimately the goal. So, so yes, the, the, the literature is very clear that naturally acquired immunity uh, is also very protective and long-lasting, as long-lasting as the pandemic has been ongoing so far. And uh, and these things are all important when it comes to the these new emerging variants. So the Delta variant is the current one of concern. Uh, we've heard lots of news coming out of India. That's That seems to have been the origin of this Delta variant. And... Uh, Probably what's most relevant to, like, in terms of what we can expect in Canada, uh, the UK probably serves as the best model for that. Um, you know, similar a similar type of infrastructure in terms of how our society operates, and uh, and they have gone through this um, experience of having the Delta variant become the the dominant one. So what's happened in the in the United Kingdom is uh, it's been interesting actually. So. At first, people, we were, you know, concerned about the situation in India because it seemed like it was a huge number of cases. First of all, uh, in, in terms of absolute number, um, there were a large, there was a, you know, very large number of cases being reported uh, on a per capita basis, actually. When you put it on a per capita basis, remember, we have to remember that India has a huge population. And so compared to a country like Canada, if we put it on a per capita basis, they actually, it actually wasn't as bad as it seemed when just uh, focusing on the absolute numbers. There were uh, quite a few deaths associated with the Delta variant, uh, but uh, so unfortunately, 
um, well, I mean, the fact is, so in India, they have this uh, caste, what we call a caste structure uh, in their society. And uh, the majority of these deaths have occurred in the, the, low, the lowest caste uh, in, in Indian mm -hmm. society. And the reality is, unfortunately, uh, individuals who are part of the lowest caste in India, they tend to live in, under conditions of extreme poverty and don't have adequate access to, um, well, they don't have they don't have access to adequate medical infrastructure, right. and so a large large part of the reason for excess deaths due to the Delta variant in India has actually been because a lot of the people didn't have didn't have access to basic medical care, mm. and and so that's why the UK situation is uh, probably more representative of what we can expect to see here in Canada. So what people need to realize, first of all, is that the Delta variant is in Canada. Uh, and, and so what we can expect, like in the United Kingdom, is we can expect that this will become the dominant variant over time. And one of the reasons for that is the Delta variant is undoubtedly more contagious. It, it, uh, it spreads more readily than the, the, the parental or the original, right. uh, you know, Wuhan strain of the uh, SARS coronavirus too. So it definitely spreads more easily, um, but it seems to be much less dangerous. And so what's interesting is if you look at the, um, anybody can go to the United Kingdom's government website and, and access their health data, just like we can get that from Health Canada, the Health Canada website. And what's interesting is if you look over the past two and a half months in the UK, about two and a half months ago, they were the Delta variant represented only about 10% of the cases of COVID-19 that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. Now, today, it has almost completely taken over so mm -hmm. that it now represents at least 90%. They've gone over 90% of all the current cases of COVID-19 in the United mm -hmm. Kingdom are being caused by the Delta variant. But uh, again, when we're looking at cases, uh, again, we haven't done a good job globally at breaking down what, what we mean by cases. Right. And, uh, and of course, there's going to be a huge range. So I, I like to keep, you know, point out that um, if somebody gets a common cold, that's a case of a respiratory yes. infectious disease. Yes. And, and indeed, so what we need to look at then in terms of the data, it, it, so we can understand better the danger is look at what the, what the worst outcomes are, and that would be death. And hospitalizations. Yes. So hospitalizations that would be representative of, of severe disease. And what's interesting, if you look at the number of hospitalizations occurring in the UK, it plummeted after their uh, most recent uh, wave, their third wave. It plummeted, and during that time, that's when the Delta variant started to take over. And yet, the hospitalization rate continued to plummet, and almost, almost to baseline, like almost to to, to uh, like neg negligible, negligible mm -hmm. hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. And that has continued for the past couple of months, even though the Delta variant has now become uh, is now responsible for ninety percent of the current cases. Right. So, so that's uh, that's good news. Great news, actually, for us, right? Because it seems like this new variant is. Uh, it's it's gained the advantage. You know, the bad news is is it's more contagious. The good news is is it seems to be substantially less dangerous. The symptoms aren't nearly as obvious uh, as it would be with the previous strains, and so therefore, uh, you know, people might be might have um, signs or symptoms that are so mild that they they might not uh, they might not feel as prone to stay at home. 
and uh, you know, and protect others from getting infected as they would have with the uh, the previous strains of this virus. So that's kind of what we're looking at then, David. Oh, the other thing I should point out, which is interesting, this is why the UK is interesting. So they, they're definitely, they definitely have a higher frequency of immunization throughout their population than we do in Canada. Right. Um, but it's interesting because they, they still represent the same kind of spectrum. So they have, uh, they still have, uh, of those who have been vaccinated, um, they, uh, the majority still only have one dose. But there is uh, quite a substantial proportion that have had two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. And then although smaller than our uh, group in Canada, they do have a substantial number of people as well who have not been vaccinated at this point in time. And what's interesting with the Delta variant is it doesn't seem to uh, have, doesn't seem to care too much about which of those categories people are in when it comes to the severe outcomes like hospitalizations. So again, hospitalizations have, have remained very low among all three of those groups. And in fact, so one of the things that's, that's again, it's a bad news, good news story. The, the, the bad news seems to be this this variant. So, so in Canada, we're no longer using the AstraZeneca vaccine as a first dose right. because it proved to be too dangerous for yes. people with a, with a estimated incidence of potentially uh, dangerous blood clots yes. of one and out of one out of every fifty five thousand right. Canadian adults who are being vaccinated. Um, but one of the things that we also recognize from the AstraZeneca vaccine is the African uh, strain of the the African variant was able to largely bypass the immunity conferred by the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so what we're seeing now with Delta variant for the first time is is a version of the virus that's now starting to evade with, with relative, somewhat relative efficiency, the, the immunity conferred by the other vaccines that we're using in Canada. So that would be the Pfizer and the Moderna. So again, when, the, when, they're, when looking at the cases, um, there, there are many cases in both the double vaccinated group uh, and especially the single vaccinated. In fact, it's been estimated based on the data from the UK that those who have received a single dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, the level of protection conferred by the uh, so the effectiveness of the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may be as low as 30% mm. um, against that particular variant. Right. It would uh, it would be higher uh, and should be substantially higher after getting a second dose. But nevertheless, this variant seems to be fairly indiscriminately infecting people, whether they have two doses, a single dose, or haven't been vaccinated. And again, I like to highlight have, not having been vaccinated does not equal not being immune. Again, right. Um, in, the, in the limited studies that have been done, it suggests that actually quite a substantial proportion among the unvaccinated do have evidence of immunity. Uh, so again, I think it's good news uh, on the global scale that there is some evidence, especially in the context of the Delta strain, that uh, populations around the world are now you know, approaching some type of herd immunity, um, have protection that even if it's not full protection, at least partial protection against this virus. And so even though this is now starting to bypass the vaccine-induced immunity, uh, again, that might be the bad news for those who've been vaccinated because we have been concerned that there is are going to be viruses that can start to bypass that immunity. In this case, this virus, although it can bypass that immunity to some degree, again, I like to emphasize it's showing that it's much less dangerous. Right. Okay, so right. the chances of anybody being hospitalized by this virus is much lower right. than with the previous strains. Right. Right. 
My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Byron Bridal. I've had him on the show before. He is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. And we're talking to him and getting an update on him from uh, about uh, COVID-19. And so it's a pleasure to have him back here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Uh, Dr. Byron Bridal, you mentioned some very interesting things there. Uh, going back to the naturally immune, it, it, it makes me wonder about what the industry is doing or how they're looking at at this in terms of would would those people that have developed a natural immunity um, and, and as you say, potentially a more robust immunity, uh, are they being looked at as, as possible candidates for, you know, looking at their blood or trying to get some kind of a, a, of a, uh, a vaccine that would help protect uh, people better in the future? Is, is, is that something that gets done? Uh, yeah, yeah, in they say uh, absolutely. So there are researchers, again, at the University of British Columbia, interestingly enough, where your son is, uh, who are looking into this. They're, so what we call, these are people, people indeed that show evidence of immunity, uh, especially not required immunity. And this is always of interest from the get-go, right? Anytime you have an infectious agent and you can find people that, uh, that seem to be naturally immune, mm. uh, one of the things that, that's often done is looking for antibodies from these individuals right. that are particularly good at neutralizing the virus and then and then there's the potential to convert those vir- those antibodies into drugs that can be used to treat people so for example something similar was done uh, you may recall with um you know the most famous example would have been president uh, former president trump yes and when he got the covid 19 he, he did receive an experimental injection of a cocktail of antibodies and yes. this is exactly the type of way that th- those antibodies were were chosen were selected yes. uh, they took um antibodies from people that had that had been infected with the virus and cleared the virus they tested the antibodies and that's easy to do you can do that in a laboratory what you do is you just simply mix the virus with the antibody and then look at the ability of the virus to infect human cells mm. and what you look for are antibodies that are very very efficient at preventing that virus from infecting cells mm. if the virus can't infect the cells in our lungs then we're not we're not going to get infected and we're not right. going to get sick. Okay. Um, and so that's exactly a type of research that, that has been going on from the beginning. You're, you're absolutely right. And the other thing that's happening is, in fact, um, so I know I know with uh, some of my collaborators at the University of British Columbia, they're involved in this. One of the other things they're doing is they're looking at what the common targets are for these antibodies. And so rather than just finding the antibodies themselves that are very good at neutralizing, they're looking at what is what are the tiny pieces of the spike protein that's on the surface of the SARS coronavirus 2. And the reason why we're always talking about spike protein is that's the protein it uses to attach to our cells and get into our cells. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's such an emphasis on the spike protein, because if you can get our, these antibodies we make are very large proteins. And so if you can get an antibody that binds to the spike protein and, and, and then physically prevents it from binding to our cells, then that's going to prevent infection. And so the other thing they're doing is 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 it gets to, along the lines of exactly what you said on more of the vaccine side. They're looking at what are the common small pieces of the spike protein that these antibodies are recognizing. These antibodies that are very good at neutralizing, and that, with the idea being that uh, to take those pieces of the spike protein and use those very either antibodies that can directly be administered to people or as you implied new vaccines that can be used to administer to people and one of the reasons why um Delta is particularly excited about this new technology that's coming along that's in the pipeline is that 
such a technology would actually allow us to move away from using the intact sp spike protein which we're using right now and um, so I've been you know fairly vocal over the last little while about some concerns that have come up with using the the full spike protein simply because parallel sets of research that have been done looking at how SARS coronavirus 2 causes harm to our body has highlighted that the spike protein in and of itself if it can get into circulation which there's some evidence it might be able to do in some people uh, you know, very few we know because the severe side effects tend to be quite low and uh, but this but there is evidence that the spike protein itself can cause damage if it gets into circulation in some people and so for that on that basis there are there's a lot of interest growing interest in trying to find new vaccines where in which we can use pieces of the spike protein and not the in, in, entire spike protein mm. uh, now looking at this idea of the naturally immune or or just this this variant again as well the delta variant which as you say seems to be much more uh, contagious, but potentially also much less dangerous on the whole. Are, are people that are vaccinated somewhat less protected, or will the body react in a way that, that treats it because it is a variant, um, more like uh, with the ability to, to become immune um, if we don't have a, a, a vaccine against that? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So, first of all, just to clarify, some people might might interpret more robust as meaning like a higher magnitude or a you know stronger immune response. Yes, that required immunity. Actually, sometimes it isn't uh, as strong of an immune response ah. in terms of the magnitude. Okay, as as somebody who might be vaccinated. But where so where that robustness comes in though is is referred to as the breadth of immunity again because you have uh, you're bringing in tend to bring in a more balanced response, including T cells, right. T cells, more T right. cells typically than with these antibodies okay. or these, um, the vaccines we're using. Yes. And again, it targets multiple components. And again, okay. the reason why it's, it's great to target multiple components, this is something that I'm hoping will also be, be coming out in the future iterations of um, COVID-19 vaccines is I'm hoping we're going to be able to target multiple components in those mm. vaccines, right, to better simulate the breadth of immunity we get with uh, naturally acquired immunity. So, At what point do we start to look at this and say it's just another, like, similar to a flu virus that's going to be coming around every year? Well, it, it's, it's yeah, fascinating that you say that, David. We, we might actually be close to that because if, 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 I mean, if you look at the news, that's exactly what we're hearing about this Delta variant. And in fact, you know, the, sort of the new set of symptoms that people are to be aware of when it comes to Delta variant actually are much more akin to the, you know, something like the common cold, mm. um, you know, runny nose and sniffles and things like that. Uh, you know, actually sort of quotes forewarning people that the symptoms come across, seem to be much milder. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there for now, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. And if it's okay with you, I would very much like to have you back on the show uh, sometime, say, early September or so, once we get back into the swing of things for the fall. Um, and uh, as we see how things are rolling out, uh, schools will be back to, to in play and those kind of things will be happening. I'm sure we're going to have more information right across the country to talk about at that time. Yes, and hopefully, uh, hopefully some, some more good news. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Great. That would be fabulous if you're interested. I, I'm definitely interested. I would uh, love to do that with you, David. All right. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. My pleasure. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Dr. Byron Bridal is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. It's been a pleasure to have him on the show talking about COVID-19, the Delta variant, and other factors involved with this as it rolls out. And uh, that is this portion of the show. Please don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Hey, thanks for joining the show. This is Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you type in uh, one of the two coordinates, 106.5 or 95.7, you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today, I have with me, architect Daniel Glenn. Now, he's here to talk about a film that he took part in. It's an original film, a TVO film, actually, by Ron Chapman. He's a Toronto-based award-winning director and producer. And I had Ron on a number of weeks ago talking about another film he did called Shelter. But this film, From Earth to Sky, is all about Indigenous architects. And it premiered on... National Indigenous Day, which was June 21st on TVO, but you can now see it on uh, TVO Docs on YouTube and a TVO Roku channel as well. So you can look this up from Earth to Sky and see this film. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Daniel Glenn to the show. Now, Daniel is a nationally recognized expert in culturally responsive architecture and in green affordable housing with a focus on work for diverse cultures. Mr. Glenn's work reflects his Crow tribal heritage south of the border in the United States. He has been featured in the film Indigenous Architecture, Living Architecture, and four of his tribal projects have been featured in the book Design Reimagined, New Architecture on Indigenous Lands, published in 2013 by the University of Minnesota Press. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the school that he actually uh, went to, if I'm not mistaken. Daniel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David. I'm really excited to be here. Montana State University for my undergraduate uh, and MIT for my graduate. Mm. So, from Earth to Sky, when did you first find out about this film, and and what did you hear about it uh, in in terms of why the film was being built or, or made? Well, it actually began as you might have heard when I was invited, uh, along with my colleagues, to be part of the Venice Biennale in 2018. Yeah, we were uh, we were part of that team there was actually 18 of us and originally the film my understanding was the film was going to be about primarily that event but it kind of evolved into really focusing on seven of the more principal architects senior architects uh in that or in that group Mm. but all, all 18 of us were were uh excited to go to venice in 2018 and then later uh the same exhibition um, unseated Voices of the Land mm-hmm. was uh, at the Canadian Museum of History. Mm. And it's a traveling exhibit, so it should be going elsewhere uh, as well. But uh, it really, all of this really began as a, as a interrelationship between First Nations and Native American architects and also with our Indigenous colleagues in New Zealand, mm. um, the Maori architects who who kind of interestingly brought 
us all together in New Zealand that kind of uh, really cemented our, the relationship that we all have um, as Indigenous practitioners yeah, I mean, and our friendship. Yeah, that's interesting you point those two things out, uh, Venice and uh, New Zealand, because they're both featured, of course, in the film, which is wonderful to see. And it's wonderful to see you all together celebrating like that in the way that we do get to see it, but also explore these individual stories of your own and the other architects that are featured in the film, of course. I guess the one thing, as you as you mentioned those two gatherings, um, the one thing that comes to mind is is... Do you think that is something that separates Indigenous architects from the non-Indigenous architects, if I can put it that way, um, that, that are out there in the general world? There's a camaraderie, there's, there's, because there, there's so few of you. Um, I believe there's only about 18 Indigenous architects in Canada. Um, and, and so um, is that something that, that you guys um, sort of have as a... As a you know, this this sort of a family or this sort of a relationship and a friendship amongst yourselves? Well, I think it's it's definitely uh, something that's grown over time as we've connected. Um, but yeah, it's it, we're a pretty small club, you could say. Mm. Uh, and I think the thing that ties us all together is not just our indigeneity, but really our commitment to our communities and to our tribes mm. and, and to working with uh, indigenous people around the world. And one of the things I learned when I went to New Zealand and, and, uh, and I've gone several times now and met with our Maori colleagues is how much, uh, uh, similarity there is and parallels there are between indigenous people around the world mm. who've undergone this colonial system and how all of us as architects, uh, uh, are really seeking ways to, to break out of that. It, uh, our latest book, by the way, that we're a part of is called Our Voices 2, The Decolonial Project. <laughs> and it actually is edited by uh, a uh, by Patrick Stewart, who's oh, yeah. First Nations. Yeah. Kevin O'Brien, who is a Aboriginal architect from Australia. Mm. And Rebecca Kittle, who is a uh, Maori architect from New Zealand. So that even the editors reflect this idea of us all coming together as as folks in solidarity with each other, really, you know, and and, and when we have come together, as it, I think comes out very nicely in the film, it really shows how uh, how these commonalities are there. But also what was really important that the film showed is how each of us really do have a very unique background and story and culture that we draw from in our work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It comes through and it, it really is interesting. Now, one of the things that you also point out that I, I'm guessing it is shared amongst the architects as most First Nation people, uh, you know, you mentioned you're, you're growing up in Billings, uh, Montana, and then the, the reserve or reservation was right next door. And uh, so you grew up off the reserve, but you, you mentioned about growing up and, and living in these two worlds, which is very, uh, a very common experience. Yeah, so, um, well, it's interesting. Our border town of Billings is actually Crow territory. We mm -hmm. got, you know, uh, the, the, the Crow Reservation itself, as we refer to reserves, has uh, shrunk 
uh, significantly over several decades. Hmm. And uh, so Billings, where I grew up, was part of the reservation. Um, and even uh, Cilicia, which is to the to the uh, west of Billings, where my grandfather was born, when he was born, it was on the reservation. So uh, <laughs> as those borders shrank, yeah, the, the lands became uh, occupied by non-tribal communities. And, um, and there was definitely a lot of attention growing up in a border town and, and being from the reservation. And my father went through an even more uh, direct experience with that because he, he grew up on the reservation and then moved off reservation. Uh, and so he had uh, experienced both those worlds very directly. And of course we have uh, allotted lands on the reservation on both my mother's and father's side. So we spent a lot of time there. And also my grandfather was a council member and leader in the tribe. So uh, we were very, much engaged in the in the tribal community throughout my childhood and 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 then myself my father uh had an engineering uh architectural and construction business yeah that focused on tribal communities and so uh i really grew up in this work you know which was, i feel very fortunate to have had that and also grew up uh not just working with my own tribe but you know the experience of working with several many tribes in the Western region. Mm. Yeah, the fact that you you had your father as that role model and and someone that was already doing this uh, architectural work, uh, you grew up in there. How do you think that um, that sort of allowed you to see something perhaps early on that you have worked? And put into the work you do now, that that maybe uh, another no, other other indigenous artists that uh, didn't have that experience, um, um, you know, to to sort of turn to. Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting because actually, as you know, I started in in his office, and he's an engineer. We had architects, and I had indigenous architects that I got to work alongside as mm. as a very young man, but. To be honest, it was really not a, a, a very positive experience with regards to the work that we were able to do. Because at that time in the 1960s, you know, uh, architecture on American Indian reservations was was really dictated uh, heavily by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and wow. by HUD. So we didn't really have a chance to, to do that much. So initially I, I wasn't really interested in focusing on that in my architectural practice. Um, I really wanted to have the freedom to do, do things that I felt were, were valuable. And I, I, uh, went off, I was away about 10 years before returning to Montana at my father's encouragement, actually. Mm. Um, and by that time in the late nineties, uh, there was an act passed called Nahasda, which, which kind of uh, returned uh, the decision making back to the to the tribes in terms of housing and that kind of thing, and mm. and uh, tribes really started to gain uh, much greater voice in in what they what we're building on our in our communities, uh. and. So that really shifted everything and made it uh, possible for me to do what I do do, you know, and now my work is 
very much informed by the communities I work with. Uh, and I, uh, so I, uh, and my father carried on as, as a partner in the firm for several years. So he got to see that transition as well. Huh. Sadly, he, he just very recently passed uh, just before the film came out. So I'm huh. sad about that. Yeah. Oh, sorry to hear about your passing, uh, the passing of your father. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, you mentioned an abbreviated form there, HUD. What, what, was that, what does that stand for? Just so people can understand. Sorry, that's the housing and urban development uh, entity of the federal government. So Indian housing is, is as we refer to, I know your First Nations people don't refer to themselves as Indian, but in our country, we often do. And mm-hmm. uh, Indian housing itself is an arm of HUD. I see. And I'm just wondering, because of what you were just saying, uh, not only uh, of that process of uh, of learning what that means to be an indigenous architect but because of your the backgrounds that indigenous architects come from and the the idea that you were saying there's it's a struggle to try and get people thinking outside of the box you might say because of the 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 kind of 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 buildings that were originally uh constructed um but that that desire to also implement um a, a grounding, a, a respect for the planet, and those kind of things. Has, is that a challenge also to try to get some of that thinking around the process of of how the buildings are, are going to be constructed to keep those things in mind? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a sort of an assumption that because Indigenous people are, are inherently, are, are philosophically deeply rooted in the land, that, that, uh, that they're also, you know, sort of by default, environmentalists mm-hmm. but the reality is that um most indigenous communities are also very very poor yeah um and so it's often seen uh, when we first start out these things that oh you know we can't afford green architecture you know oh yep. that's for rich people yep. you know to, yeah yeah to have a sustainable design and all of these kinds of things and you know right. things like solar panels or uh you know doing things in a way that is uh, has a smaller footprint mm. are things that people really aspire to and would like, but they often are kind of fearful that it will just drive up costs. Yeah. So we go through a whole process of, uh, of really looking at the budgets with our tribal communities and talking about not just the first cost, you know, but looking at the long-term costs yeah. and, and in fact, how energy itself is it ultimately and the long-term maintenance and operations costs will greatly exceed any first cost. So it's kind of a shift of thinking in construction, especially when we're talking with, you know, folks who uh, in the tribes who've been used to a certain way of doing things Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you know, it's not all about first costs at all. We have to look to yeah. that long-term and right. more and more tribes are just completely on board with it. But over the years it's been, you know, it's definitely been, part of the process yeah and getting to that it completely understandable from treatment and just the way as you say uh the 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 economic uh situations that most reservations and and indigenous communities have found themselves in over time uh as being neglected and and not being counted and not being given the proper amount of money to work with or or and and have that freedom to think in those ways um 
Before we go any further, I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses, and this is Moment of Truth. My guest here on the show is Daniel Glenn. He is an architect, indigenous architect, working in uh, south of the border. It's a pleasure to have him on talking about a film, From Earth to Sky, which you can see on TVO Docs YouTube. You can also see it on TVO Roku. It uh, premiered on National Indigenous Peoples Day on Monday, June 21st of this year. And Daniel is one of the architects that is featured in this wonderful film. You really should check it out. Uh, it is quite quite a, a beautifully filmed film. Uh, we get to see different parts of the country. We get to see these wonderful different approaches to uh, Indigenous architecture from many parts of, not only across uh, Turtle Island in North America, but we get to uh, go to see uh, uh, Venice uh, with all the architects there uh, in 2018. I believe that was when that took place. But they also go down to New Zealand to meet with some some wonderful architects, and we get to see some beautiful architecture uh, down in the New Zealand area. And so it's a pleasure to have Daniel on here talking about it. Now, he's featured alongside of several several other architects in this film. Uh, Wanda De La Costa, she uh, is one of them. Also, Tammy Eagle Bull, the first woman architect in North America. Alfred Waugh, as well as... Um uh, Brian Porter from Six Nations and Patrick Stewart, Stewart that uh, not Patrick Stewart, Stewart from uh, from St- uh, Star Trek. No, not that Star, not that Patrick Stewart, um, but uh, another architect in, from British Columbia. So, oh, and of course, we cannot leave out Douglas Cardinal, the first Indigenous architect in North America, who has done some absolutely wonderful, beautiful work, and he's uh, featured uh, first off in the film. So I highly recommend, if you can, uh, check this film out from Earth to Sky. And as I say, it's a pleasure to have Daniel Glenn here um, on the show talking about it. Um, So Daniel, you know, I mentioned uh, New Zealand, and when you guys had the opportunity to go down there, and uh, there was some really beautiful work that we saw down there from the architectural designs that we saw there. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure to learn from them. And actually what we have done is we have gone to New Zealand to visit with our colleagues, including Rao Hoskins, who's a, a very prominent uh, Maori architect. And, uh, and with the intent of learning from them in terms of how they're approaching this whole idea of kind of decolonizing their architecture as Maori people. But they've also sent delegations of their own uh, from from uh, their organization, Na Aho, and they came. They came, uh, and and uh, we, many of us, had a chance to take them around to our uh, mm. reserves and show them our uh, work mm. here in the United States. Uh, so I, I really, it's a it's a dialogue that we're learning from each other, and and uh, uh, and seeing what the possibilities are of how we transform these ancient, beautiful, powerful cultures into a contemporary uh, expression of architecture that um, also, you know, serves the communities we work with in a way, ultimately, that they see it as their own, which is Mm -hmm. the goal that I think all of us really seek to achieve. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the film itself, I have to say, I'm very pleased with how it turned out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's it's actually just a great film, you know, from mm-hmm. everyone I've talked to who's had a chance to see it, uh, which, you know, for us, that's the way we like to think about our architecture is that we want 
to create this beautiful indigenous architecture, but ultimately we also want it to be great architecture. Sure. And, uh, and I think the film shows that that is in fact what, what many of us are engaged in doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing that you, going back to something you mentioned about the obstacles and the approach that you take when you get involved with either a, a council, a tribal council, or, or uh, your, your, your um, clients that you're working with from an Indigenous perspective, and the challenge is not only that, that um, you have, but that they have. And, and that goes right into the funding, like you were talking about, in terms of, you know, understanding uh, not only the upfront costs, the first costs of, of, you know, getting the getting that shovel in the ground and starting to, to get the designs going for the project, but also the long-term costs, the, the, the getting, getting the client thinking, I guess, differently, because they haven't had that opportunity in many cases to think long-term, to think about how uh, some of the cost-saving measures that might pay off by uh, approaching something, you know, putting more, a little more money into it up front that could have those long-term payoffs and, and those kind of things. Um, but because also they are limited by the funding dollars which they have access to. And would you say that that is, well, from talking to your colleagues, Indigenous colleagues, that that is something that each of you has has had to do uh, just because uh, it is, is necessary, because you want this project to succeed, succeed just as much as the, your clients do. But uh, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe that's different from the non-Indigenous architect who might go in and say, here's what we got for you, here's how it's going to cost, let us know. Um, would you say that, that there is a different in approach uh, there? Absolutely. I mean, I think that for us, we often get very engaged as I, I am right now. I'm working on a cultural center for my own tribe back at the Little Bighorn College that's mm. featured in the film. Mm. Um, and that's a big question. You know, how is this going to be paid for? So right. what we end up doing a lot as the architect is we get involved in those questions and efforts towards fundraising. You know, mm. how are we going to get the money for this? Right. And, and the vision making that we're involved in can really help getting those funds yeah. you know once these things are right. are presented and seen and the and and people can visualize uh through our uh techniques and skills uh what is possible they get excited you know they get excited around it we d- designed the uh, Payne family native american center mm. at the university of montana uh, with my firm of seven directions architects yeah. planners and you know that project uh it took we did the concept design in 2003 and it wasn't completed until 2010. You know, it took mm. about five years for them to pull uh, uh, the $7 million it took to construct the building together. Right. You know, um, and that's not uncommon. And right, right. also, you know, it, we do end up in situations where we do these beautiful plans and drawings and, and they're not able to be carried out. And that, mm. that's always very hard on us. And I sure. think as in, uh, since we're part of these communities, that this is, this is something we're, we're so committed to, to making happen. Also, I just want to say that, you know, a key part of, I think that's the strength that we bring to the table is that is this idea of trust. You know, there's a lot sure. of distrust, uh, obviously in indigenous communities to outsiders. And I think that, uh, what we bring to the table is even though we're from different nations, oftentimes than the, than the tribes we work with, uh, they, we, they get that we understand where they're coming from, that we know 
case that we grew up in similar situations and 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 that builds a level of trust that I, I don't think you can really have if you're not you know from that community and it's one reason we continue to strive to bring up uh, additional you know new indigenous practitioners like your son we want to uh, to see them rise in the profession and have a voice and be able to uh, bring this out in the next generation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for saying that. You know, it's probably very different from the non-indigenous uh, approach because you are you are committed. You basically you're committed from day one, start to finish, uh, because you are working alongside with those clients uh, all the way through this this project to make sure that it's going to succeed. Absolutely, and you know, I think that Ron Chapman did a great job in terms of gaining the trust of mm. of each of us mm. in the, this process, right. um, and through that, he was able to come into our communities and he, he made that effort. You know, he came to my reservation. He was yeah. there at uh, Crow Fair, which was, is our annual uh, big powwow. We call it the TP capital of the world, which is <laughs> yeah. featured in the film. We're yeah. excited to see that. And, you know, um, he was able to, to, uh, to, to be brought into our worlds. Um, and I think that was, that that's a wonderful part of the film. And I think he, he saw early on that, you know, what we did in Venice was beautiful and powerful and all of that, but it wasn't our story. You know, mm. our stories take place in our own communities with mm-hmm. our clients and with the work that we do. And he came out, you know, he put a lot of effort and time into going out and capturing that. And I think that's what's so extraordinary about the film. Yeah, absolutely. It really shows up very well, and and each of you uh, have, are given a, a wonderful amount of time to share your stories about not only your your work but about your backgrounds and about the challenges and and about the environments that you are working within, and uh, and the philosophy that you bring along with it from an indigenous perspective. So yes, I encourage people to watch the film. You can find it, as I say, on TVO uh, YouTube and uh, also on. On, uh, Roku on TVO. Uh, it is called From Earth to Sky, and it's a unique and inspiring story of, indi- of indigenous accomplished collective of architects driving a movement as climate change threatens the planet. And they are world leaders in their aesthetics, their form, their sustainability, and ultimately in protecting Mother Earth. And their stories uh, have never been more important. As and, and this film articulates the power of indigenous architecture and its relevance in today's world. And uh, that's they're not my words. I'm just reading what it says about the film, but I back up everything it says completely. It's been a real pleasure to have Daniel Glenn on the show talking about this. And I really appreciate you taking the time, Daniel, to share out of your busy schedule and the great work that you're doing, along with the other Indigenous architects that are featured in this film, uh, to, to you know, talk to us about it. Well, thank you, David. I, I enjoyed being on the show, and I, I'm, I'm really glad you're getting the word out there about this film, and I hope many people get a chance to see it. That's Daniel Glenn. He is a nationally recognized expert in culturally responsive architecture in green affordable housing with a focus on work with diverse cultures. As he mentioned, he has his own firm in the States and it is called Seven Directions Architecture. And he is one of the architects featured in the film From Earth to Sky, which I told you uh, you can see on TVO uh, 
uh, uh, Docs YouTube. And uh, so it's been a pleasure to have him on the show and talking about this. He, as I say, is featured alongside of several other Indigenous architects. Tammy Eagle Bull, the first woman architect in North America. Douglas Cardinal, the first Indigenous architect in North America. Uh, a great little bit on him and, and the wonderful work that he has done. Patrick Stewart from BC is another architect. Brian Porter from Six Nations. Uh, Alfred Waugh, another one. And uh, Daniel, as I mentioned, from the Crow Tribe. So it's been a pleasure to have him on the show. And uh, that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. My name is David Moses. I'm your host of Moment of Truth, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.